0: I was driving across Virginia last month when I stopped in a town named Sutter's Mill. The reason for my travel is largely unimportant. I work for a large publishing house, planning and prepping sites for book signings and readings for several of their local big authors when they have book tours in the eastern half of the United States. I've been doing it for five years now, which means I've logged a lot of hours on the road and I thought I'd seen just about every small town between the Mississippi and the Atlantic. But I was wrong. The only reason I even took the road that led me to Sutter's Mill is because of the bad highway detour combined with my GPS crapping out for a good 50 miles. As afternoon began turning into evening, I found myself desperate for a place to stay or at least get gas and some food so I was relieved when I saw the weather-beaten sign proclaiming I was entering the town of Sutter's Mill. It wasn't a bad-looking town, for as small towns go. Like many small southern towns I'd visited, it leaned heavily on old antebellum mansions and a town square that looked like it got ten times the care and attention of the streets and buildings just two blocks over. Yet, whatever aspirations the people of Sutter's Mill might have had toward tourism... My first impression was that they were out of luck. I didn't see many people at all, and those I did see were either old men, a pair playing checkers outside of a barbershop, or children, a trio of boys and one girl playing with a frisbee in the tiny park at the center of the small town square. That by itself wasn't so strange. The really isolated small towns like this were often dead during parts of the day, and around here people were probably home getting ready for dinner. What was strange was the sunglasses. I'd seen the pair of old men first, and their large wraparound sunglasses were comically big, but not outside the realm of fashion crimes I'd seen committed by the elderly in the past. Besides, my working theory was that once you got past a certain age... You earned the right not to give a fuck anymore. The men had just looked at me as I passed, and while they didn't return my wave, I just suppressed a small laugh and went on. I was still looking for an open restaurant or a decent-looking hotel when I found myself traveling around the town square. The kids were out there playing normally enough, but they all had the same sunglasses on, too. My first reaction was to look up at the sky. Was there an eclipse or something that I didn't know about? But no. The sky looked normal, and while it was growing darker, that was due to the lateness of the hour, not some astronomical event. I felt a twinge in my belly at the strangeness of it all, but I tried to ignore it. I was tired and hungry, and couldn't afford to get too easily weirded out when my best guesstimate was that the next closest town was nearly two hours away. Leaving the town square behind, I sighed with relief when I found a moderately cute bed and breakfast next street over. The sign out front said there was a vacancy, and while I doubted they could give me anything for dinner, I figured I could get a soft bed and good directions to a local diner or something. Parking my car in the small gravel lot behind the house, I went up to the screened-in back door that had a sign above it saying Guest Entrance. I felt a bit awkward ringing a stranger's doorbell, business or not, and had to force myself to wait until an older woman shuffled out onto the porch and opened the door. Hey there, honey, what can I do for you? I could feel the words stuck in my throat. The lady seemed pleasant enough, but she was wearing the same fucking sunglasses as the rest. What's going on here? Uh, I was going to see about getting a room, but I think I might just drive on. I forgot, I have an appointment later tonight. This was a lie, of course, but I was ready to get in my car and find a different place that didn't give me the utter creeps. The woman's face lit up with a smile. Oh, yes, we've got a room that'll be perfect for you. Come on in. I started backing down the steps. (laughs) No, really, I have to be going. She flapped her hand at me dismissively. Nonsense. Pretty young thing like you doesn't pay to be out on the road late at night. Come in and see the room at least. And if you decide it still isn't for you, I'll at least point towards where you want to go. I almost resisted further, but I didn't see what the real harm was in looking at the room. I was tired. The place looked fine from the outside, and if the woman tried to do some kind of weird shit, I felt sure I could handle her physically. So, I tried to put on a smile. I nodded and followed her inside. The interior of the house was... beautiful. Well-decorated clean without coming across as overly staged or sterile. The woman led me at a slow pace up a creaking staircase to the second floor, and when she opened the door to the room, I felt myself relax some. The room looked normal, and had a phone, a small but relatively new LCD TV, and a queen-size bed that looked wonderful after hours on the road. It even had a little laminated card on the table with the Wi-Fi password. Seeing all the trappings of and connections with the outside world made me feel less like I was in the opening act of a horror story, and when she told me it was only 75 bucks for the night, and it included breakfast, I decided to stay. The owner of the B&B, told me her name was Valerie as we went back downstairs, didn't have much to offer in the way of dinner, but she could point me to a nice steakhouse just on the other side of Town Square. When I mentioned I was a vegetarian, she quirked an eyebrow from behind her dark glasses and gave a little laugh. Well, I'm sure they'll find you something to eat, too. I headed back to the car and roamed around for 20 minutes, looking for other options for food than the steakhouse. The kids were thankfully gone from the town square now, but I had no luck finding any near the restaurant that looked open. Resigned to eating a mediocre salad bar, I pulled into the steakhouse parking lot. It was packed with cars. And given the lack of options in town, it was kind of easy to see why. Still, I thought it was strange that I hadn't actually seen anyone driving around or any other people yet at all. When I went into the restaurant, I found there were only a couple of handfuls of people sitting at the various tables and booths inside. Less than half of what I would have expected based on the cars outside. But that thought fled as soon as I realized everyone in there were wearing the same sunglasses too. I almost bolted right then, but something made me stay. I think part of it was a slowly building sullen anger. I felt like I was the target of some weird elaborate practical joke and I didn't like it. Didn't like reacting to it. So I forced myself to approach the hostess and ask for a table for one. When my waitress came over, she told me her name was Holly and she'd be taking care of me tonight. What could she start me out with? I surprised myself by pointing out her sunglasses. Well, Holly, not trying to sound like a bitch, but can you tell me what the deal is with all the sunglasses? It's dark outside and everyone I've seen in this town is wearing them. Is it some kind of town fashion trend or joke or something? The girl visibly paled at my questions, clutching tightly at her order notepad. Well, I guess it looks funny to someone not from here, but it's part of a special treatment we have here. It helps a lot, but it makes your eyes real sensitive-like. I frowned at her, my curiosity supplanting my irritation and anxiety for the moment. Treatment? What kind of treatment, and what does it help? Um, well... A man that looked to be in his thirties, as best as I could see around his stupid fucking glasses at least, came up and patted Holly on the arm. (laughs) Now, Holly, don't do this nice lady up with your chit-chat. Go get her a water and let her ponder the menu for a minute. Holly looked between the man and me before nodding and hurrying out of sight. The man looked back at me with a yellow-toothed smile. You have to forgive her. She's a good girl, but she does love to talk. I raised my eyebrows. Actually, I was the one doing the talking. I was asking about everyone wearing sunglasses and what kind of treatment you all are getting. His smile widened slightly, or at least he showed more teeth. It's a private matter, you understand. We're lucky enough to have talented doctors around these parts, and she helped us all greatly, but it's not my place to divulge into other people's business. I'd already decided I was leaving the restaurant and the town right away, but I wanted to tell this smarmy fucker off first. Sliding out of the booth, I looked at him levelly. So what keeps you from telling me what they did to you, then? He chuckled. <laughs> Why, nothing, of course. He reached up and pulled off his glasses. They helped me to really see. I stared into where his eyes had been, but now they were just raw. Red sockets with the withered remnants of cutaway eyelids curled at the upper edge like a drawn-up window shade. He leaned forward merrily to give me a better look. And I can see so well now. Inside the sockets there were endless tiny eyes. They shined in the dim track lights overhead, a flowing, rippling mass of white and red like a froth of bloody milk that was shot through with veins of black that seemed to bind one speckled orb to the next. A thicker gray strand of tissue ran across and into the bridge of the man's nose before flowing into the other socket where the same shifting horror was repeated. I was already screaming and backing away when I felt rough hands grabbing me from behind. They dragged me back through some double doors that led to a large kitchen, except the back portion was clear of any equipment. It didn't take long to see this was because the concrete floor had been broken open and led down into the earth. I'd been kicking and fighting hard before, but I redoubled my efforts now. I felt my right shoulder protest and then issue a bright flare of pain as my shoulder popped out of the socket and I had a moment where I thought I was almost free, but then the hands were clamped on me tighter as they dragged me down into the tunnel below. We traveled along a dimly lit path that was periodically illuminated by work lamps and more than once we intersected with other paths heading off in other directions. The further we went the more I felt like these monstrous lunatics were ants carrying me to the center of the anthill. Except I soon realized we were going up again, and I found myself wincing as I was pulled out into the bright lights of what appeared to be a local high school gymnasium. There were a few people in the stands, but many more were milling around on the floor of the old run-down basketball court. At the center of the court was a tall woman in a floral skirt and a long white coat. As I was drugged closer, she introduced herself as Dr. Thurber. I'm so glad you could join us tonight. We don't get a lot of visitors to our little town, and if I'm honest, that's been a good thing up to now. Her lipstick was too bright red and slightly smeared as she leaned closer to me, only enhancing the look of madness I saw in her eyes. But I think we're finally ready to share our gift with the outside world. There have been some missteps, to be sure, but I think you'll find the treatment is a lot less painful and more agreeable than it used to be. I realized she was talking to me with the same sing-song monotone that some doctors use when they get ready to give you a shot or do something else unpleasant. And then I glimpsed the piece of metal she was pulling from a nearby tray. It looked like a sharp-edged ice cream scoop. Hands were pressing against my face, now holding my head still despite my struggling. God, no, please, please don't, I won't tell, just please... I blacked out for a moment from the pain. Out of instinct, I closed my eyes, but it didn't matter. The biting edge of her instrument sliced through the lid and scooped out my right eye all in one smooth motion. She was fishing for the second as I came back to wakefulness long enough to let out another wail of pain. Shh. I understand. That's the bad part. Don't you worry. All the pain will be gone in a moment or two. I couldn't see any longer. I could barely reason at all through the pain and insanity of it all, but after a moment, I felt an intense heat, as though someone was pouring molten lead into the freshly excavated holes in my skull. I tried to thrash, but my head was still being held fast, and after a few seconds, the sensation began to fade to tingling coolness and then nothing. I felt myself wishing I could black out again, or if not that, just go ahead and die. It had to be better than whatever they had in store for me. I flinched when I felt a soft, cool hand on my forehead, and then the doctor's voice was gently murmuring in my ear. They're there. That's it and all. The brood is set now. And don't you worry. You'll wake back up with your pretty eyes just like they were. You can tell yourself it was all a bad dream, if you like. Just so long as you don't look too closely or deeply, that is. Next thing I remember, I was waking up in bed at home. I had a moment of calm wakefulness before I remembered a gulping, panicked lungfuls of air. I felt my face. Everything felt normal. I rushed to the bathroom and at first glance, my face, my eyes, they looked just the same. Or almost the same. Because in the depths of the black, when I looked closely at my eyes, I could see something back there that wasn't there before. I could feel it faintly moving and shifting in my head as it took in the world I was showing it. Rubbing my shoulder, I stumbled back to the bedroom and found my phone was the very next morning and I didn't know what to do or who to call in the days and weeks since I've grown somewhat used to whatever it is they put in me I've started to move further away from the ideas of killing myself or cutting out my eyes again I don't know if that means I'm going further insane or they're just controlling me more I also don't know which one I'm more afraid of. So, by accident, both of our stories tonight involve a small town that has something incredibly strange going on. Now, I grew up in a small town in North Carolina. So small, in fact, that even if I told you where it was, I don't know that many of you would know it even exists. But, in the small chance that you do... I'm not going to say, but I am interested. Did any of you grow up in a small town population, less than a thousand, less than 800, less than 500? And if you did, did you all have any weird urban legends or strange happenings that everyone in the town kind of knew about? I'd love to hear any uh, personal experiences that you had growing up in a small town. Let me know down there in the comments section below, and let's get right into tonight's final story. The darkness is insurmountable here. The air reeks of salt water, decaying fish, and other human stenches that I cannot even begin to imagine, even if I felt the desire to. An unearthly black fog has settled over the city as it does every night, and I yearn for a daylight that feels as though it may never come. The night in the Malavera is oppressive. Almost as though if it were not night at all, but rather the natural state of the world around the city. Of course, there's hardly a problem with the town itself. The problem is what inhabits the town. Beneath the cover of darkness that invades the streets every night, I can hear the sounds of shuffling weary feet, drunkenly stumbling towards some unknowable destination, if one actually exists from outside I can hear the sharp words of ghouls wandering around starting fights and wreaking havoc the one place that they never venture is Port Luna for all the Malvera knows never to descend to the seaside before the sun had broke over the horizon stories of disappearances and unexplained occurrences led to the superstitions and urban legends of deceiving demons and malevolent spirits haunting the area Instead, these creatures, for they can never be called human, roam the streets throughout the rest of the city, a nightly disease that infects the city once dusk falls that is purged as soon as the sun rises. Life here is almost unthinkably dangerous. And yet, I call Malavera home. The grim undertakings of the nocturnal do not consist of life in Malavera, rather as a mere part of life. During the day, the city is an entirely different place. The ocean-side air carries a scent of tranquility and freshness through the streets. The people who fill the roads with the daily hustle and bustle are polite and kind, and I used to have friends among them. The sun overhead shines down, and when I look out to the sea from the port and behold the glistening waters shimmering beneath the warm sunlight, I think that there is no jewel upon this earth that can rival its beauty. If the city truly is cursed, it only reveals itself at night. When the sky takes on that dark blue hue, the clouds fade under the cover of night families retreat into their homes and lock their doors, and the sea loses that glimmering beauty. I, too, barricade myself in my quarters to wait out another night. It's been that way for as long as I can remember, and it will be this way until the ocean itself rises, seizes the city in its wet grip, and drags Malvera down to the briny depths. I'd be content with this crude system were it not for a particular night that I'd spent outside the safety of my home. I'm a man who has survived Malvern at night, but at the unexpected cost of my very sanity. Whatever still dwindles within my head presents you with what I can recollect of that terrible night, but with this dire warning. Never go outside to Malveria at night. I was a young man of about twenty-four years when it happened, and I'm ashamed to admit I was not of an agreeable reputation. Indeed, I had made mistakes in my life regarding my career choices, though were it not so damned easy, I would not have been bothered. At my side was a fellow whom I long revered and called a friend. His name was Amicus, and together we managed to successfully swindle many sailors out of their money. Our original scam was a simple one. In addition to docks holding large ships at faraway places, Port Luna also held a thriving market that began at dawn and ended shortly before dusk. Sailors would come to trade with the local merchants, and Amicus and I would disguise ourselves as such in order to fool the sailors into buying our goods. The items in question, such as fruit or spices, were actually purchased from other stalls. We would then sell them to eager sailors for twice the price, which meant that we would purchase a dozen apples or oranges for six pieces and then sell them to sailors for twelve or thirteen on days that we felt particularly bold. On one occasion, we sold a dozen oranges to a group for thirty pieces. They were outraged, but begrudgingly paid the thirty pieces after we informed them that, due to a drought, it had been a difficult season for harvest. The sailors who had been out to sea for so long that they had become desperately in need of fruit were pitifully easy to fool. Over time, our scams became more elaborate. We would take simple balls and paint them to resemble fruit before filling a crate with them, stacking real fruit on top in order to conceal the deceit. We would then deliver the crate to a newly arrived ship for the ludicrous price. Of 50 pieces, and the captain, upon inspecting the fruit on top, would pay us. Soon we realized that painting all the balls was unnecessary effort, and instead wedged a large piece of cardboard halfway into the box, filling the bottom part beneath with sand to make up for the difference of weight and give the illusion of it being full of fruit. We garnered a notorious reputation around Port Luna, though our tricks continued to prove effective for many months, as sailors would not fathom our treachery until they had long departed out into the sea, at which point it was far too late to voyage back to Malavera. Of those who were so infuriated that they returned to port to seek us out, we would simply leave the port and not return until we were absolutely sure that it was safe. It was in this fashion that we operated for months, until the day came that I had never anticipated would find me trapped on the streets of Malvera after dark. Amicus and I were convincing the captain of a crew of newly arrived sailors of the quality of our product, which, for the curious, was a simple crate containing a dozen or so oranges, our carefully made fakes, and the sand, when a delivery boy happened to pass from the same stall that had sold us the oranges a week prior. He caught on to our trick once he spotted the oranges and loudly informed the captain that our attempted trickery and stated that the oranges were not only soon to be overripe, but were no longer fresh. However, the captain still seemed uncertain, and we may have still salvaged the scam with our pride intact, had the delivery boy not gestured Amic's face and declared it a dishonest face. The short remark irritated Amicus so fiercely that he, holding the crate with one arm, made to grab the boy with the other hand and was so careless as to let the crate fall from his grip. Upon hitting the dock, the crate broke in half, spilling ripe fruit, balls, and sand at the captain's feet. He must have been warned for our screams by other sailors, for at the revelation of our deception, his face became quite red, and he reached for the cutlass at his belt. The first few raindrops of a seaside storm fell as Amicus and I hurried away, leaving the crate where it lie like a monument of our shameful falsehoods on the dock. Amicus and I were forced to flee from the wrath of not only the sailors, but the police overseeing the market when the delivery boy alerted them to our tricks. Amicus and I tore out of Port Luna and into the streets, spurred onward by that fabled adrenaline rush of fear as the sailors yelled profanity as they pursued us, and the policemen blew their whistles as they attempted to maintain order. I remember roughly bumping into a woman on the street as I hastened to keep up with my friend, knocking her to the ground and sending the foods that she had been carrying in a basket into the air, though I hardly noticed it at the time. Instead, all that mattered was our escape. Unfortunately, at that moment the clouds opened and a downpour of rain fell. Seaside storms are hazardous, and in the chaos as people fought for shelter, Amicus and I believed that we would make our getaway down an alleyway until we heard the captain's boots still clambering after us in a determined hunt. I could feel the polished blade of his cutlass whistle through the wind behind me. At that very moment, much to my relief... His foot landed on a recently made puddle of rainwater, and he slipped and fell into the cobblestone. Amicus and I were free to make our getaway, but at that moment, some fool pulled a large horse carriage at the end of the alley and stopped, blocking our route for escape. Behind us, I could hear the captain rising to his feet to resume his chase. Our time to escape was limited, and I began to panic. The driver had stopped his carriage, with the wheel blocking any hope that we had of climbing beneath it. Amicus did not hesitate. With his superior height, he leapt into the air and seized hold of the carriage's roof. His boots kicked to the side of the carriage as he pulled himself atop it, and he looked back to cast me one last pitying look before he disappeared over the other side of the carriage, leaving me to my fate. The captain advanced upon me, but at that moment, a policeman appeared at the far end of the alleyway, loudly blowing his whistle. The captain lowered his cutlass in confusion and turned away from me to face back to the policeman. Behind me the door to the carriage opened and a man in a black hood, a man who I presumed to be the carriage driver, peered out at the scene in the alleyway. I wasted no time in pushing the man out of my way and climbing into his carriage before opening the door on the other side and tumbling out, falling to the ground in the process and dirtying the sleeve of my jacket with flecks of mud. Behind me the man in the black hood closed the doors to the carriage and whipped the reins spurring the horses onward. I fought to climb to my feet and I fled, leaving the encounter with the captain behind me. I wandered through the streets of Malvera, but there was no sign of amicus. The rain fell like a veil, cloaking the figures on the street from my view, making it even more difficult to find my friend. The storm was overpowering me now. A screaming gale nearly forced me off my feet. I knew at once that I should seek shelter, unfortunately, or though some cruel karmic retribution by the will of an angry god my residence was on the other side of Malvera the storm was growing in intensity so much so that the debris was beginning to fly amongst the fierce winds. water was flooding the streets as puddles formed overflowed and grew to consume the bricks I was desperately in need of a place to wait out the storm so I began searching the shops that adorned the sides of the street for one that was open to no avail It was getting far too late for any respectable establishment to have its doors open to customers. Rather unwillingly, I found myself huddled deep in an alleyway. The rain soaked my clothes and chilled me down to the bone. It was there that I suffered for an unknowable amount of time, though the buildings around me weakened the wind to a slight frigid breeze, and the downpour was barely tolerable. By the time the rain stopped, I was shivering. My clothes were damp, and each movement that I made sent droplets of water flying from my body. My shoes were nearly ruined from being submerged for so long in the growing ocean that had once been the street, and my toes were numb from the icy temperature. When I exhaled, a cloud of white mist emerged from my mouth and my spine would quiver. I was shaking, though I know not if it was from the unbearable cold or the sudden realization of my predicament even from where I was hidden in an alleyway. I could see the sky above, though even though I already knew what would be waiting for me, my stomach sunk deeper and deeper as I slowly left my refuge for the Malvernus streets, my gaze still fixated on the sky. A waning gibbous moon cloaked behind the clouds of stone hung within an abyss of black that sparkled with white stars. It was in disbelief, though I could not tear my eyes from the sight of a night sky. I hadn't seen one in so long, and believed that I would never so long as I lived in Malvera, but here it was. I was so suddenly overcome with emotions of such a powerful fear that when I finally did manage to tear my gaze from the moon, my face contorted in a wide smile, and I began to laugh until tears were streaming down my cheeks and my breathing had turned ragged and tired. The memory of an event that had taken place mere months before that night had come to mind as I stood, shaking in the frosty night. I'd been in my den, taking shelter for the night, when from outside came a sudden ruckus. A panicking man was running from house to house, banging on the doors. Even now, so many years later, I can remember the sound of his screams. I'm not one of them! I don't belong out here! He was shouting, pleading to be let inside. I had the blinds pulled over the windows, yet I still ducked down in front of my desk when he came by my door and wrapped his fists on the wood. Please, somebody, they're coming! I frozen place. I did not dare to rise from my chair to cross the room. From where I was, safe inside my own home, I listened to the man attempt to rush to the next house. But I never heard him knock on the door. He began to scream, and then his screams turned into howls, and the howls to whimpers before all outside was silent. As quietly as I could, I rose from my chair and went to my bedroom before closing and locking the door, and tiredly climbing into bed where I would toss and turn for the rest of the night. The morning after... I left my home to see a tattered jacket lying in the street in the same area that the man had been shouting. People trampled on it as they made their way down the street. Was that to be my fate? To fall victim to whatever foul nightmare prowls the streets in the darkness? It appeared that my only chance for survival would be to seek shelter in my own home on the other side of Malvera. I feared that if I remained in place much longer, whatever unseen monstrosities that I'd heard every night would soon be upon me. I had no time to waste and began my long trek. I strode along the streets, wary to be traveling in plain sight. I looked to the shadows of the alleyway, thinking that they would prove an invaluable hiding place, but the darkness was so absolute that I could not tell if there was anything moving within the shadows. It was then that I caught my first glimpse of a denizen of the night. He looked to be old, his hair was ashen, and his black eyes seemed sunken and filled with a hollowness dug through years. His crooked teeth smiled at me beneath a wide-brimmed black hat, and his black trench coat seemed long, almost too long. He was a tall man. So tall, in fact, that at first I believed he was levitating in the air. Startled by his sudden appearance, I quickened my pace, leaving that vile alleyway behind me. I dared not to look back over my shoulder for fear, And he would be following. It wasn't until I reached the end of the street that I ventured a quick glance over my shoulder and saw, to my immense relief, that there was no one. My relief was short lived as I looked back down the street and was met with a shock. I was fully aware of the amount of nighttime ghouls wandering the streets of Malvera was vast, though I was not aware of the full scope until that very moment. The street was lined with a wide array of strange creatures, and I now knew that my assumption of these nighttime stalkers, not being human, proved true. The pungent stink of decay and squalor filled my nostrils as I stood paralyzed by the horrifying sight before me. Creatures sat in doorways, motionless, paced the streets restless, or stood huddled in unsettingly close circles, whispering in indiscernible voices, None of these nocturnal freaks seemed to pay me any attention, however, so I wondered if it might be possible to simply walk down the street. My only other option was to detour through an alleyway, but without knowing what sinister entities lurked in the shadows, I could not bring myself to enter the alley. Trying to keep myself from shaking so harshly, I began walking down the street and past the ghouls. As I wandered past the circle of people who had no color to them whatsoever, not on their skin or clothing, I could catch only a few select words. Catalyst. Crystal. Gates. Oblivion. Before the group went silent when I approached, while keeping their heads bowed into the circle, unmoving. I passed by a man in a faded gray cloak who was lying against the shop and peered at him as I passed, only to discover to my horror that he had no face beneath his hood. Though as I stared, two eyes began to push outward through his skin before the skin opened, pushing the eyeballs out onto his face where the brilliant blue radiance watched me. When more eyes began to appear on his cheeks, forehead, and chin, I walked a little faster and hurried away while feeling the heat of their intense gazes on my back. It took everything that I had to not break into a sprint, though my face glistened with sweat and I now buried my hands in my pockets to hide the shaking. My breathing was heavy and I struggled to quiet my gasps. At this point, I hadn't even made it halfway down the street. Nothing about this was natural. The monsters were real, and they had come. I passed another circle of colorless people, catching a few more words. Inns, Corsair, Syndicate. But I was almost wheezing. Finally, I reached the end of the street where a raven-haired woman wearing black clothing and holding a white umbrella was standing with her back to me. She looked around at me and caught my eye. Her face was pale, her skin almost ghostly. The lady turned to face me, slowly reaching out a weak hand. Please, are you here for me? She asked in a voice that was a little more than a whisper. So empty, so cold. No. I stammered, backing away as the empty lady slowly moved closer, her hand still extended. I- I'm sorry, I-, I can't help. Suddenly a rough hand clamped down on my shoulder and pulled me so violently that I was nearly yanked off my feet. Instead, I whirled around to find that a sailor, covered completely from head to toe in a muddy grime, had grabbed me in his cold, unyielding grasps. His eyes flashed darkly, filled with a bitter malevolence, but his beard seemed to be made of something other than hair. I felt my stomach sink when I saw his beard moved and realized it was made of fingers, some twitching, others pointing toward me as if trying to grab me. You ain't one of us. He croaked in a hollow, gravelly voice that sounded as though it had come from an abyss at the end of the ocean floor. You don't belong here. Let go of me! I struggled to pull away from his hold. The empty lady was still crooning behind me. He was slowly pushing his face closer to mine, and the fingers reached out for me. At the last second, I pulled my head back and threw it forward, feeling a satisfying crack where his nose was as he stumbled back, releasing me from his powerful grip, but the clammy fingers seized hold of my face. Shrieking, I pulled away, but the fingers did not relinquish their hold. His beard stretched as though he had a long arm protruding from his face, and I could hear the gruesome sailors cackling in my ears. It was only when I opened my mouth and bit down on the fingers, trying to climb inside, that he howled in pain and the fingers retracted. Disoriented, I scrambled to get away, my footsteps sounding like thunder on the bricks as I ran for my life. I paid no attention to the freaks lining the streets or the circles that went silent as I neared. Instead, I was so caught up in my mad dash to even remember which direction I was going. All that mattered was getting away from the monsters, but that feat was impossible in a city filled with them. My fearful run began to garner their attention to the creatures. Some seemed uninterested, others called after me, but some lunged to catch me. A woman with long, greasy black hair dove at me from a familiar alleyway, her lips parted sideways to reveal jagged, broken teeth, and she hissed at me. Panicking, I nearly lost my balance, trying to turn in a new direction, and ended up running beneath an archway into Port Luna, the knocked. Eternal Forbidden area where no stalkers would dare wander after dark, for forces far more chaotic and malign than they inhabited this area. For a moment I thought I caught sight of a ghostly sailor wandering the edge of the port with a lantern in hand but his beard was not as proclaimed and he was wearing the garb of a captain the sudden howling of a wolf somewhere nearby startled me, and I reflectively tensed up at the sudden sound before it abruptly stopped. Everything seemed so quiet in the port, which I thought was odd at the time, but the reason why did not occur to me until much later. During the day, in addition to the rowdiness of the market, there was the constant crashing of waves against the docks and the squawking of seagulls. That night, the ocean was impossibly silent, and the only living things were watching from the shadows their presence felt, but unheard. I so desperately wanted to run from that unholy place, but my feet seemed locked in place. I was paralyzed with fear, my whole body tangling with shivers. It suddenly became very cold when I looked out over the ocean. The moon did not illuminate the waves. Instead... Was blacker than the sky, so it more resembled an endless abyss yawning over the horizon. It felt as though my blood were turning to ice as I stared, numb, at the unnatural, unrecognizable sight before me. Rather unexpectedly, I felt an ancient presence nearby, and all of the other malevolent entities seemed to disappear as it drew nearer. Sweat rolled down my brow as I felt it moving over the cobblestone to my side, but I didn't dare to look. Instead, I stood in mute terror, trembling and squeezing my eyes shut, praying that tonight was not the night that I met an untimely demise. When I opened my eyes, the ancient creature passed me by, and I caught my first sight of its massive form. From what little that I can remember, it had skin whiter than anything I'd ever seen, and it seemed to be twisted and pulsating while it prowled on four legs. Whether they ended in paws or claws or some other appendage, I did not see. It turned to face me with a deformed face though I could somehow tell that it held a mildly interesting musing expression. Its eyes were hollow, but all-seeing. Its mouth was permanently open, as though it had not finished what it had to say, and it never would. This indescribable creature surveyed me for a moment, and then it spoke in a voice unlike any humans. This was a voice that a human would be incapable of making, for it resonated with eons of life and whispers of debilitation. It did not move its mouth to say those three words that have haunted me ever since that night, echoing in my dreams and hiding between the sentences of everything that anyone has ever spoken to me since. At once, I regained control of my body and turned to flee from that repulsive port, and I've never returned. I do not recall how exactly I returned home, for my mind was a spiral of madness for many months after my encounter with the ancient entity, but despite my slow recovery, I have not remembered. Even most of the creature's form is a blur in my memory as the mere sight unraveled my mind for quite some time. From what I've been told, I was found in my house the next day, raving like a madman and laughing to myself. I spent many years in a recovery clinic and have not seen Amicus since his abandonment that night. now, years later, I live my life quietly in Malvera. I've found honest work and I'm often inside my house hours before and after night falls over the city. Somehow I know that I'll never be able to leave those three words that creature spoke are forever ingrained in my mind. I now write them, hoping that I find some solace in revealing my knowledge and praying whoever reads them will someday find that they do not remember these three words. Welcome home, human. Thank you.